Hey folks, this is Josh Schlossberg with the Green Root Podcast. This episode, we have Roy Keane. Roy Keane has been a forest activist for 50 years in Oregon, and he's been self-employed as a forest consultant and timber cruiser for those 50 years. I've known Roy for a while when I was back out in Oregon working on forest issues, and I've been wanting to get him on the podcast for a while. So I'm really glad to have you, Roy. So welcome. Thank you. Well, let's get into it, right? So the biggest issue I want to talk to you about, and this is something that I think people in the Pacific Northwest might be familiar with, but I think folks across the rest of the country are not, it is the use of herbicides in forest operations. So clear cutting and then spraying herbicides to prevent the cropping up of certain quote undesirable plants and trees. So tell us about that. Well, I'm gonna start with the term herbicide and herbicide is just one type of forest poisoning. So I'm gonna refer to forest poisoning as poisoning because that's really what it is. Along with herbicides, you have pesticides, which take out any number of different insect pests, including pollinators. You have fungicides that take out funguses, including uh, problem fungicides like Bravo, which disorient and kill young salmon. <clears throat> and you have uh, Fertilizers that are aerially applied and the phosphates from those fertilizers cause toxic algae blooms in streams and lakes. So there's a range of substrates. I'm not going to uh, think of fertilizers as poisons, but there's a distinct range of, of poisons, insecticides, pesticides. Uh, pellets are cast out of helicopters to kill the mountain beaver which in California has been rightfully named an endangered species, but in Oregon is rarely talked about. So it's not really a true beaver, but it's an animal that's endemic to this part of the world. And we're killing it off as quickly as we can because it digs around in, in young plantations. So anything that interferes with tree growth is considered uh, fair game. There are no forest rules or <clears throat> policies to really curb pesticide use. There's a few uh, make-believe kinds of policies to say things like, well, you can only spray within 50 feet or 100 feet of this stream or this salmon stream or this domestic water supply. But when you get down to aerial spraying, there's a lot of drift and those rules are rarely enforced and it results in uh, problems with people's animals being poisoned, people being poisoned, all of it gets covered up. If you bring a lawsuit against the companies, they hire a bevy of lawyers and they basically just take you out. So <clears throat> this is a much larger problem than most people realize or admit in Oregon. And now to bring it home, to those of us living in Lane County, Eugene, Oregon being the county seat, the county we live in is the timber epicenter of the United States. It's one of the two largest timber harvesting counties in the US. The other one would be directly to our south, Douglas County. 
we're talking about a county that routinely, and I use the word harvest not because I agree with it. I use the word harvest because it matches the data subsets. If you uh, Google up Oregon timber harvest, you'll get a lot of data. If you call, if you Google up Oregon tree cutting or Oregon logging, you won't get nearly the same data set. <clears throat> so in Lane County, we quote harvest a half a billion board feet a year. That's a lot of trees. That's literally millions of trees. In order to accomplish that, uh, we cut most of that harvest from the private lands. So Lane County's largest private landowner is Warehouser. Warehouser has plus or minus 350,000 acres of forest land in this county. And when we had the fires this year up the Mackenzie River, which is the source of our drinking water and a tremendous source of recreation and irrigation, we burned uh, probably 50 or 60, maybe even 70,000 acres of where Hauser land was burned. So we saw a big chunk of their land burned, and what will they do? Well, they will do what they've always done. They will call in a lot of chemicals. They will start with spraying all the lands that were burned, but not necessarily salvageable to prevent the bloom that comes up after fire. They will spray and sterilize all the acres that are salvaged prior to planting seedlings. After the seedlings are sprayed or are harvested, or excuse me, planted, they will come back in and they will spray again to keep any competitive vegetation from coming up with the seedlings. So there's a lot of warehouser acres out there in that 175,000 acre forest zone up the Mackenzie that will get chemically poisoned at least twice, maybe three, maybe even four times. And that will happen in the next couple of years. Now that's a lot of toxins. That's a lot of substrates when the rain comes flowing downstream into the river. But here's the rather sad and unique thing. We've never monitored any of that. The Department of Forestry has never monitored aerial spraying in this county. They did a very sketchy aerial spray monitoring in 2000, and they uh, conveniently left Lane County out, and they didn't put even a single plot in. But all of that monitoring that they did for aerial spray was carefully coordinated with volunteer timber companies and carefully coordinated on dry days when there was no runoff, and so the results came up, as you would expect, fairly benign. So that's kind of in a nutshell. <clears throat> what we're looking at out ahead of us over the next couple of years. We're looking at a large out-of-state forest owner that's traded on Wall Street, doing a tremendous amount of forest poisoning on their lands. And the other players involved, the other companies involved will follow suit. But that one company I highlight because they're out of state, so they have no real investment here beyond their sawmill in Cottage Grove, which is just south of Eugene. And they're uh, by far the largest landowner. 
and I want to make that point that here in Lane County, where we consider ourselves very progressive, we're being literally dominated by a large company who is going to poison our watershed. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do it with little or no contest. There's not going to be any monitoring. There's not going to be any, hey, don't get that close. In the salvage operation, the riparians have already been taken off limit by the Department of Forestry. So riparian areas will be logged just like the hillsides. It'll be ridge-to-ridge logging and ridge-to-ridge poisoning. So that's, that's kind of in a nutshell right now today what those of us in Lane County are looking at, and it's one of the better kept secrets. Most of the people in this county have no idea this is going on. So now, given that we have this huge poisoning out ahead of us, how did all this start and why are all these chemicals used and what is the genesis for this process? And most of it started in the 60s in the late 60s and in the early 70s. And it was promoted by the big chemical manufacturers like Monsanto and Dow that were making Agent Orange for defoliating Vietnam and for defoliating parts of Cambodia. And at the end of the war, they had all this poison and all this industry built up and all this manufacturing capability and they had no place to put it and nothing to do with it. So they sold the poisoning program to the federal government. The Forest Service began to use toxic poisons, Agent Orange specifically, to kill off vegetation in Southern Oregon. This is where I became an activist. I found out this was happening I looked at the scope of it. I looked at how ridiculous it was on the ground. I watched uh, hillsides that were predominantly covered with tan oak, and the tan oak was sheltering young conifer seedlings underneath, which in time would have come up through the tan oak. And the tan oak is a scrappy little oak tree. It provides valuable food, it provides habitat, and it fixes the soil after events like fires. So it's a very established, recognized part of the Siskiyou biodiversity. And the Forest Service decided they would poison it. So they poisoned hundreds, perhaps even thousands of acres of hardwood trees with the hope of clearing the way for the conifers. The conic thing in a tragic sense is that some of the acres they poisoned, the the soup they used, the poison was so hot that it killed everything. And this is something people don't realize. People hear these poisons called politely herbicides and they think, oh, they must be selective. The herbicide must select out broadleaf plants, scrubs, competitive plants, whatever we want to call them, that don't belong within a tree farm and just kill them off and then leave the dug fir, which is the 
main tree they replant. That's not true. The level of poison is what determines the kill. If you heat the poison up, if you put on a strong enough concentration, it will kill the conifer as quickly as it will the broadleaf plants because the little needles will get too much poison on them. The reason it selects or kills the broadleaf plants is because the broadleaf plant can hold more of the herbicide. So it's just a concentration effect. It's not selective. It's, it's, uh, it's using a sledgehammer to drive tax. You know, there's no reason for it except to speed up or to accelerate the tree growth process. And there's been a lot of research over the last 10 or 20 years showing that over the longer term, showing that over a couple of rotations, it doesn't really speed things up that much. And about the second or third time you use it, you begin to sterilize the soil and you get yourself into a place where you're causing as much uh, as much damage as you are immediate uh, benefit. And all the benefit is measured in the immediate sense. Rarely is it carried down the line. Rarely does anybody look over the long-term sequence of a couple of generations of trees and ask themselves uh, how necessary is herbiciding, forest poisoning. So the point is that most forests will grow just fine. Most tree plantations will do just fine without forest poisoning. They never had forest poisoning in a natural system. The forest did just fine. We had the greatest forest in, in the world here before they were logged. And everybody was happy. All the plant life was happy. The forest was happy. Everybody was cruising along without putting any poisons on. So why the poisons? Because the poisons speed up the tree farm process, at least in the first, in the first generation. They speed it up by taking out all the competition. So you can grow a so-called merchantable crop of trees in 40 years if you poison all the competition versus waiting another 10 or 20 years to let the merchantable conifer species dominate the site as they do in nature and take care of their own uh, blocking of the unwanted so-called vegetation. So it's basically uh, used to speed up the growth cycle and speed up the harvest cycle, which in turn, if you're a Wall Street company, means that your money is not overextended. And that's the tragic truth is that uh, after about 30 years, money grows faster than trees. So Wall Street would like to have tree crops ready for the next harvest in 30 or 40 years. They don't want to wait 50 or 60 years. And that's, that's the dilemma we're caught in. We have no rules. We have no regulations. Now, this whole lack of regulation is further complicated by the compromises that are now going on. Twelve of our main conservation groups in Oregon have agreed to sit down and talk over aerial spraying with the industry. And this is a huge tactical mistake. All it's going to result in is just further aerial spraying. It's not going to put a lid on it. It's not going to bring it to the public eye. It's going to result in a nice cozy situation where the industry will make a few very small concessions, which 
sound good in policy, but in practice will not be workable. Roy, you see, can, you, can you talk a little bit about the process of aerial spraying? <clears throat> How it's done physically? Yes. Yeah. Well, you, you uh, bring a helicopter in to a landing adjacent to the uh, areas you want to spray. And remember that this is driven by scale. It's a lot cheaper to bring a helicopter in and spray a thousand acres than it is to bring a helicopter in and spray 40 acres. The cost would be prohibitive to do this with 40 acres. So everything that is done on the landscape is geared to the scale, bigger cuts, quicker cuts. And so you have 1,000, 1,500 acres that either has to be sprayed to be sterilized prior to replanting or is replanted and those two or three-year-old seedlings need what they call a release spray. So the helicopters brought in, the uh, poison is brought in sometimes in 55-gallon drums, sometimes in a special truck. The uh, affluents are mixed for the site. They, they declare on paper oftentimes one ingredient when oftentimes there are five or six toxic ingredients combined. It's what I call a soup. And the uh, spraying commences with the helicopter filling their tank and going out across the landscape with pylons stretched out, nozzles, and spraying uh, like, a, like you would mowing a lawn going up and down and up and down and spraying. And it's, it's not the kind of an operation where you can make precise changes. You can't turn the helicopter tightly and follow a little stretch of salmon stream that you've agreed to not spray because it doesn't work that way. So when they're going back and forth and back and forth, what they'll do is reduce or cut the spray over areas that they've supposedly agreed to protect. But in reality, that stuff is drifting. It's in the air and it's drifting sometimes several miles. So the idea of precision spraying with a helicopter is just, uh, is just an idea. It's, it's a promotion. It's not a real kind of operational thing they can do. And, and to spray with a helicopter, to broadcast spray, the other thing you have to do is you have to use a lot more spray. Now, I've had private owners I've worked for that have wanted their vegetation to be controlled. They don't want to wait the extra 20 years for the Douglas fir to come up over the tops of the broadleaf vegetation, and they want to use some herbicide. So I would put a crew in on the ground with backpacks not spraying out in front of themselves where they're contaminated, but starting at one edge and backing through the unit and spraying specific concentrations of hardwood or broadleaf vegetation. Oh, here's a patch of scotch broom, we'll spray it. Here's a, here's a clump of young madrone, we'll spray it. Here's a clump of young oaks, the owner doesn't want those, we'll spray them. And this is going on before the overhead canopy is cleared. This is going on before the property is logged. So when the logging does occur, 
there's not a great big rush of vegetation that jumps out and fills that space. The vegetation has already been precisely sprayed. So you can do a much more precise job. And at the end of the day, treating 100 acres by hand versus aerial spraying 100 acres might result in a tenth of the herbicide because it's being applied with precision to certain problem areas. It's not being broadcast over a large area. So, you know, you think about it in terms of scale and broadcast and, and, and monetary efficiency rather than ecological efficiency, it's a whole different issue. Yep, well, I think that's important for people to understand because I don't think everyone realizes that there's these helicopters that are just spritzing this stuff from up above and it's kind of getting everywhere. It's getting onto people's lands, it's getting into the waterways. So back to the discussions around this. So there are environmental groups who have been trying to address this for years largely unsuccessfully. So they want to have conversations with the large timber companies and trying to put some sort of restrictions in place. So what has that process been and what fruits has that led well, to? <clears throat> you mentioned earlier that I've been self-employed all the years I've been an activist. You and I both know that having external employment of some kind allows you to be much more outspoken. We both understand that in Oregon, which is timber dominated, if I would have been a company forester, I either would have kept my mouth shut or been fired. It's just that simple. I have forestry associates right now that feed information to me. They're telling me things that are going on right now in the uh, timber salvage process that's going up on upriver. I'm privy to that, but I dare not mention their names or who they work for, they would immediately lose their jobs. So the forestry profession has been dominated over a century in the Northwest, starting with Weyerhaeuser dominating the uh, academic institutions. So we have a tremendous bias already running through the system. And this is before we get to specific issues. We're already pushing back against this bias. So now with herbicides, the people who objected were largely people who were not members of large environmental groups. The people who ran a campaign and successfully stopped aerial spraying for two years and four months in Lincoln County were not paid activists because the salaried component of the environmental movement, what I call the envirocrats, they're up against the same problem that foresters are up against. If they speak too loudly and too strongly against aerial spraying, they'll find their funding reduced. They'll find, they'll find in some cases their funding cut off. And environmental organizations, once they become funded, and I know this is a fact, I ran an environmental organization we had a little funding. I never took a nickel to be the director of it. I kept my own private business because I didn't want to be holding to anybody. But I watched other organizations that were, quote, more environmental than we were, get uh, far more money. And I watched them hire people, uh, rent office spaces, run campaigns, things that take a lot of money. And I realized in order to keep afloat, they have to play ball. In Oregon, if you want to 
get along financially, you have to go along with the industry. It's just point blank. I mean, there's lots of discussion about it, but that's what it boils down to. And I say this after watching this whole thing for 50 years. Some of my clients pay me to be a professional observer. When I'm working for a big company, sometimes they'll pay me to go out and look at 100, 150,000 acres and to look for issues, to look for problems, not to go out and cruise the timber, but to look at the broad picture, look at the big picture and pick things apart, tell them where the problems are gonna be. And I've been doing the same thing with the environmental movement. I've never been a member of any environmental group. I've never belonged to Oregon Wild. I've never belonged to Nature Conservancy. I've never belonged to uh, Audubon Society. I've kept myself out of those memberships over the years because I wanted to be able to speak frankly. So part of the problem with these groups sitting at the table and making an agreement with industry is that they're tapped in to timber funds. Rather, the timber funds come indirectly through various uh, foundations and grants, or rather the funds come directly from participating in things like forest collaborations, where they all sit around and decide how much logging you can do in a given area. they're compromised is the point. They were compromised before they ever sat down at the table. What's the most important to them? Is it the most important to stop aerial spraying of forest poisons? Or is it the most important to them to keep their paychecks and keep their budget? I can answer that for you, but most of us can already figure that out. Mm -hmm. And so in Lincoln County, when a group of dedicated volunteers came together to put up an initiative, which is about the only way you ever get anything done against big timber in Oregon. If you don't have an initiative, you can forget it because the legislatures are just like the environmental movement. They're all paid to stay in place. They're all paid to play the, to play the game and they talk one thing, but they do another, you know, we've got all of Oregon's democratic representatives right now going along with a great big federal uh, fund to do more logging out in the middle of nowhere in the woods when we all know that's not going to stop extreme fire events. But they're going along with it. It has nothing to do with what party they belong to. If you want to keep your office, if you want to keep your environmental organization, and you're in Oregon, you play ball with big timber. If you don't, they will take you out. They will get to your funders. They will get to your donors. They will take you out. So we all know this, and this is why Lincoln County had this remarkable victory. They had a victory because they were not compromised. They had a victory because they all came together and they didn't try to tiptoe. They they said, let's stop aerial spraying in Lincoln County. And they had an initiative they put together They said, let's stop aerial spraying. And they didn't say aerial spraying of herbicides. They just said, let's basically, let's stop aerial forest poisoning, whatever it is. You can't do it in Lincoln County. Now, Lincoln County is very different from Lane County. Lincoln County is considered far more conservative. It has a more rural base. People came together, even people I talked to over there from old logging families, they came together, they disagreed with helicopters spraying their watershed with helicopters buzzing around spraying the uh, largely industrial forest in Lincoln County. They don't have a lot of federal land like we do in Lane. 
And they said, this is wrong. This has to stop. There's other ways to grow trees. There's other ways to put herbicide on. We don't need to have helicopters drenching the countryside. This is not a war zone. This is a forest. Our water, our wildlife, our public resources are entwined in that private forest. They may own, quote, the forest, but they don't own the water. They don't own the wildlife. Those are public resources. So the initiative, in spite of everybody's misgivings, all the big groups, they all said, oh, this will never work. You guys are nuts. Passed. Wow. I mean, it passed in a largely rural, reasonably conservative county. The aerial spray ban passed. Now, that might have been lost on some of the big groups, even, even the groups that are supposedly against pesticide use did not back or support that initiative. They just left everybody out on their own. None of them, none of the big groups involved at that bargaining table now were in support of that aerial spray ban that won the voters in Lincoln County. So it was convenient for them to not pay too much attention for it. You know, and they had to eat a little crow and it passed. And the easiest way to do that is just to pretend like it's not there. Oh, the aerial spray ban? Oh, you mean in Lincoln County? They never even announced the victory to their memberships, most of these groups. They just ignored it because it was embarrassing to them. And their response when a group of us said, let's pick this up and run an aerial spray ban at the state level. We can win at the state level. We can, we can put an end to aerial spray and, and let's not do it with buffer strips or 200 foot buffers or 300 buffers. That's too complicated for the public. That's too complicated for me and I'm a forester and I can't understand how those buffers are gonna work on the land. In fact, I know they won't. It'll be a policy, not a practice. Let's just ban aerial spray. Now I can get behind that as a forester because I've grown lots of trees without spray. I have lots of clients and friends that have grown trees without spray. It can be done. It's not that difficult. It's been going on a long time. The earth mother has been growing trees for centuries without spray. You don't need to poison the forest. But it was too stark. It was too black and white for the big groups. So some of the big groups said things like, well, we can't take that risk running that initiative. And, and they said things like, well, It'll, you know, if it's just an aerial spray ban, it'll never fly. It needs to be something more in the gray tone. And people like myself said, no, you don't get it. You need to give the voters a clear choice. No, we're not going to aerial spray or yes, we're going to continue to aerial spray and aerial poisoning. Give them a clear choice. It's black or white for Oregon's voters. Show how unfair it is. Show how it only benefits a select group of uber wealthy people that are traded on Wall Street. Show them the real issues and they will vote against aerial forest poisoning. We knew that, but they wouldn't get, they wouldn't get up and run with it. Nobody would support it and so it lost momentum. But here's what the industry knew. The passing of that aerial spray ban in industry dominated Lincoln County was an eye opener for them. 
they saw it coming. They realized, wow, this is a serious problem. If these people were to run an aerial spray ban at the state level, they could win it based on what they won in Lincoln County. We need to circumvent this. And so what do they do? They talk to some of their funders. They talk to their captured politicians. They talk to the governor. They talk to the legislatures. And they tell them, we need to sit down and have a meeting with the environmental groups. We need to work this out. We don't have to run a great big costly initiative. And so the people who agreed to do that agreed not to run their initiatives. They agreed not to support an initiative. That was one of the primary points of that agreement. One of the first parts of that agreement they entered into was you cannot support an initiative, you cannot run an initiative. And now let's talk about what we're gonna do. And so the whole thing funneled down into a discussion over tiny little buffers on certain, on certain creeks. And if you read the Senate bill that evolved out of that memorandum of understanding these 12 groups entered into, Senate bill 1602, if you read it and you look at some of the requirements in there, you realize that if you were living out here, Josh, on a little piece of land and you got your water out of the watershed above you, you would have to, just, just to prove that you got your domestic water from that watershed, you would have to go through this draconian process of proving that, and it would have to be authenticated, and it would have to be checked on by the state, who of course is short on funds, doesn't have money to do anything anyway. So they set it up, it was a setup. And by buying into it, it's uh, a way for these groups to save their budgets. That's really what they're doing. You know, they're, they're putting, I'll just be blunt with you, they're putting their budgets out ahead of their mission. And that's a problem for me. That's a problem for me going back my whole life. I was a mission-oriented person. And watching these groups put the, their budgets and their financial well-being and going along to get along ahead of what could have been a victory with aerial spraying is a huge disappointment to myself and to the many others of us that worked on getting Lincoln County uh, an initiative. I wrote the voter statement for that initiative. I'll send it to you. It's simple, it's 250 words and it basically says, here's why you don't need to aerial spray. So <laughs> it's a bitter pill time here in Oregon for those of us that work on forest issues because we realize the move is fractionated. The move is split. The move is split between what I call the envirocrats who are about maintaining their budgets and their well-being, and those of us that are about seeking uh, equity and fairness and social justice and having that as our core mission. Mm -hmm. So what are the specifics? You may not have this on hand right now, but what is the, the bill that has passed? So has that passed already specifically in terms of what reforms they're going to do? Well, the MOU is complicated right? Uh, deliberately because we all know how easily complicated issues can be stalled out. Supposedly next year, they're going to formalize it, but it was already semi-formalized by the passing of Senate Bill 1602, which basically formalized the Memorandum of Understanding. So it's already been authenticated by Oregon's timber-dominated legislature. It's been, it's been, it's been exonerated. 
So next year they're supposed to work out the details. Right. But the uh, the uh, little tiny little tiny restraints it puts on aerial spraying will be lifted up and and given the media polish, the media spin, and people will say, look, look, we won this. We, we, we gained this. Wow, victory. But in reality, those little points, like I explained, even with registering your domestic water supply, those little points will be so minor that in practice, nothing will change. So the public will be fed a story by the big environmental groups that we've won this big victory with aerial spraying, where in reality, we've won nothing. We're going to get hammered in these big fires, every, every large fire to the north of here, all those big fires that involved industrial land, they're going to be like the holiday burn in the McKenzie. They're going to get hammered over the next couple of years with chemicals, yep. saturated with chemicals. Now, there's another factor that comes into the equation that most of the environmentalists were completely unaware of because, you know, most of them are not only hirelings, they're not only dependent on a paycheck, most of them are office bound and they're policy wonks. That's what I call them. They're policy wonks. They play with policy. They study policy. They study procedure. They rarely go out on the ground and audit anything. They rarely go out on the landscape and look at things. Now, somebody like myself, I've had clients pay me for 50 years to go out and look at things on the land. You know, I'm semi-retired now. I still work a few parcels and properties closer to town. But back in my heyday, I burned 50, 60,000 miles a year out looking in the forest. And like I told somebody at a meeting not too long ago, when they were talking about their criteria and people were uh, pushing their academic credentials, I said, you know what? I said, I've driven over a million miles a year. Excuse me, I've driven over a million miles in the forest of the Northwest over 50 years. I've seen it, I've watched, I've looked at things. And here's the sad truth. Policy does not equate into practice. So no matter what kind of policies they come up with at the end of this understanding, at the end of this compromise, none of that will matter in practice. And the people that initiated those policies, for the large part, apart from a few industry foresters, will not be out on the ground to gauge or see the results. And who will measure it? Right. Which one of these environmental organizations will have a ready crew of people to go out and measure these streams that have been heavily hit and see what's going on. None of them. They'll all thump their chest. Oh, we made a big victory. What they did is they made a big victory on paper. They made a big victory with policy. It won't be anything at all to do with what is happening on the ground. There's that huge disconnect. And this is true with timber sales. This is true with everything the forest, the professional uh, envirocrats, the forest conservation groups. This is true with everything they touch. They rarely ever audit. They, they sign off on a big timber sale. They signed off on a great big restoration timber sale up the river a few years ago. None of them went out to look at it after it was finished. It was a disaster. I went out and looked at it with a restoration specialist and another forester. It was puke. 
it was a disaster. It was a great big timber grab, but they all applauded it as being restoration because on policy, on paper, that's what it said it was. So that's where we're headed with any kind of understanding, any kind of policy. We're headed into this illusionary process where the policy is a long cry from the practice. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point that you make about that. So let's just pretend for a second that this um, the buffers are instated, right? Because that's what it seems to be about, right? They're, they put some specific buffers you're supposed to spray up to here and, and not spray up to here. Isn't that the heart of what this legislation is around? Well, they've agreed to five or 600 foot buffers right. around schools and towns, around inhabited areas. Now that means uh, very little when you consider drift. All it takes is a little change in the breeze and that buffer will be violated. Who will measure that? Who will catch those violations? Do we have some large force of, of people out there on the ground whose job it's going to be to monitor that, that are unbiased, that are not paid by industry or not paid uh, through industry operated academic channels? The answer is no. Is Oregon Department of Forestry going to monitor it? Of course they're not. They can barely find a budget to even to even print their data out. You see, they're they're already hammered, and they've already shown uh, a distinct uh, lack of interest in monitoring or reporting anything that might carve against their industrial buddies. Yes, this went on in the north coast of Oregon with watershed issues and the environmental watershed report that the Department of Forestry caused to get shelved. Mm -hmm. So anything that's going to be embarrassing is not going to come to the surface anyway. Sure. Any uh, 500 foot buffers that get exceeded or any spray that washes out is either not going to be detected by anybody or not reported by anybody. So it's, it's going to be an unreported activity. It's going to be an unmonitored activity. Now, the other area they got into is Little tiny buffers, imagine 50 foot buffers on fish streams and domestic water sources. 50 foot, 50 foot, that's not, that's not even, you know, that's not even the, the width of a small urban house. I mean, 50 foot, that's nothing. Now, even if it were pumped up to 100 foot, that's still nothing because it's going to be around a few select streams that have fish actively in them year round. What about the streams that don't? What about the little ephemeral springs and streams that run into those streams that feed them cold water in the late hot drought? What about that? Nothing. So it's gonna be absolutely minimal. But the tragic thing is that's the policy. Mm -hmm. The practice will not equal, the practice will not even be close. In practice, does somebody think that that helicopter is going to go carefully, have some little streams and domestic water supplies carefully marked on a map and carefully detail around them while it's spraying? No. They're going to go right over them. They may or may not shut the nozzles down for a brief moment and keep right on spraying. Mm -hmm. now, That's what's and to make it worse, this most of this is going to go on behind locked gates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm, for sure. So 
like you said, there was about a dozen of the mainstream large environmental groups in Oregon that signed on to this. Of course, there are plenty of people, plenty of environmentalists who are not fans of this. Now, there was one individual in particular working with one of the large environmental groups, and he quit his job because of this sellout. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So there's clearly some conscience there with some of those folks, but like you said, they're too beholden to their paycheck and where the funding is coming from. So do you think that a lot of the folks who are part of this are unconsciously or maybe even consciously aware that they're not doing something good? I think uh, they're consciously aware, but I think if they pretend long enough that what they're doing is a solution, they, they learn to live with it. Yeah. They, yeah. I, I think they're consciously aware. I think there's people that realize that, that uh, you can grow trees without aerial force poisoning. I think there's people that realize that in every one of those groups. I think there's people that realize that what you enact as a policy does not equate to practice in every one of those groups. I think there's people that realize in order to get their paycheck, they have to go along to get along in every group. Mm -hmm. But collectively, by clinging together and maintaining a kind of collective Kool-Aid, they Mm -hmm. can convince themselves. They can drink that Kool-Aid collectively and convince themselves that this is all going to be a big improvement. And then they can sell it to the public and try to sell it to people like myself that know better as a big improvement. But they have the clout because they've stayed in line with the funding. They have the clout to get the message out. The, the, the rest of us don't have that kind of clout. Right. So do you so, think they think they're being reasonable though, right? They think, hey, this is the only way to do things. You have to play the game and over the long term, maybe we'll make some positive change. That's do you think that's their mentality? They've they've convinced themselves that we can't that we can't win with a with an initiative. Okay. Even though Lincoln County was one, they they looked the other way. They pretended not to see that. They didn't want to look at it, and now they've convinced themselves that running an aerial spray ban, not a reduction, not a gray tone, an aerial spray ban is unfeasible, will not win, and is too risky for them. They don't. You know what it is? Part of it. They don't want to risk losing. If you don't want to risk losing, you'll never take anything on in your life. Of course. of course. Or is it maybe deeper? So you say they're afraid of losing. Of course, that would make them look bad, that sort of thing, make them look weak, make them look like they don't deserve the funding. But what if it's that they're actually afraid of winning? What if they don't want to take responsibility for the changes that would come about from that and having to rethink everything? Do you think that might be a part of it too? It could be, it could very much, very much be part of it. They, they could be afraid of winning because what will they gather money for then? You see, yeah. I mean, let's, let's, let's look at, let's, let's, let's look at a slightly different picture. Let's look at federal logging. And I'm not thinking so much out here in Oregon of the BLM ONC lands, which are under a different uh, color, a different uh, legal mandate to be managed according to the 1937 Sustained Yield Act, which they haven't been. They've always been overcut beyond the act. But let's look at Forest Service out here. 
the Willamette National Forest belongs to people that are struggling to raise their children in housing complexes in New Jersey. It belongs to people in Maine. It belongs to people in Dakota. It belongs to people in parts of the country where you cannot find a conifer tree for 500 miles. It's our forest. It belongs to Americans. It's an American forest. It was created as as an inheritance and it's there to be handed down to the next generation. So we're logging, we're logging on federal land. Many economists, many astute people who have been out here their entire lives and worked with timber economics have made it clear that federal logging is not cost effective. We're paying lots of money, the taxpayers, to have our forest logged. So suppose I went to a private client and they had a fat 80 acres and it had 120 year old timber on it and I had it logged. And then when it was done, I sent the client a bill. I go to jail, that's fraudulent. So just, just in terms of economics, just in terms of the poor returns and the huge cost of logging the federal forest before we ever get to ecological issues, before we ever get to how ridiculous it is or how fewer jobs it really supports or what it really accomplishes. Just in terms of economics, it's very clear that we shouldn't be logging federal forests. We're doing an injustice. We're doing an injustice to people that live far out of Oregon. We're not just doing it to people inside the state. Sometimes we get to thinking that because these forests are inside our state, they're our forest, but they belong to everyone. That's the reality of it. So right there, right there, the environmentalists should come together with a federal logging moratorium, a national forest logging moratorium, especially with what we know about climate warming and how important it is to leave big big carbon grabbing trees in the ground, especially given all the science we have and the science that logging those forests doesn't make them fire resistance. We know all this, we've got the science. So we should all come together with a federal logging moratorium. I've been saying this for five years, but why will the big groups ignore it? because they're making money from the logging. By, by arguing, by, by legally debating timber sales, by litigating over timber sales, their attorneys are making settlement fees, some of them quite large. By enjoining collaborations that are funded by state and federal money, and all the players get some money, some juice, and these logging collaborations find reasons and ways to log more timber, they're making money from that. So the problem is the big environmental groups are making money from federal logging. Yeah. It may not be direct. It may not be as direct as the mill that buys the timber, but it's there. They're, they're profiting from federal logging. Mm-hmm. So why won't they get aboard with a moratorium to stop it? Because they're profiting from it. They're profiting from this whole this whole aerial spraying thing. Mm -hmm. They can keep it up there. They can keep fiddling with it. They can keep looking like heroes. Hey, we're going to have a meeting with industry. Hey, we're doing something about this. They're working those angles because that's one of their funding sources. So like I said earlier, they're, they're looking at their funding. They're not looking at the mission. They're not looking at accomplishing what's morally right. They're looking at accomplishing what's financially right for them. They become bureaucracies, and that's why I call them envirocrats. 
I think that's pretty apt. I've been noticing the same thing over the decades for sure. It's not spoken about that much, but I think more and more folks are becoming aware of it and putting out information like this, I think is important. So let's, uh, let's conclude this with how we would do things in another way. So federal logging moratorium, I can go on board with that. That makes sense to me. I think a lot of people who actually knew national forests were being logged uh, would actually come out against that as well. People aren't really even aware of that. So that's federal lands, that makes perfect sense. Now, in terms of these private lands, now, of course, the heart of herbicide spraying forest poisoning is the process of clear cutting, right? So you denude an entire hillside and then that's sort of the application right. you need to do afterwards. So maybe there could be a different way of doing that on private lands and what would that look like? Well. For Oregon, it would be very simple. All Oregon has to do to see what that would look like is just look at the Doug Fir region in California where they have a much tighter Forest Practice Act. Now I've been telling environmental groups trying to reinvent the wheel with forest practices, coming up with all kinds of goofy forest practice reforms, all kinds of goofy twinking. I've been reminding them, first of all, none of you have ever practiced forestry. I don't know a single Oregon group that has foresters on board who have actually across the landscape practiced forestry. They don't have any, they don't have any handle on practices. They don't understand logging economics. They don't understand forest economics. They don't understand the nature of going out and cutting timber off the forest. So they're at a huge disadvantage for starts right there at that point. Now, if you look at that, what do they wanna do? They wanna create some fluff. They wanna create some reason to get some money. So they wanna to go to a funder and say, we need a fund to study how to reform forest practices. And that's what a lot of them did. A lot of them ponied up, they got money to reform forest practices. Now, 10 years ago, they wouldn't even talk about reforming private forest practices. They said, oh no, that's the private forest. We can't go there because their funders wouldn't let them go to private forest. 10 years ago, their whole push was about federal practice reforms. And I remember getting a memo from a big group in Oregon, one of the big headliner groups that, wow, we need to get together in the Oregon Coast Range and start dealing with, uh, with forest service logging. And at the same time, the same group was promoting thinnings in the Coast Range, but now they're talking about getting together and doing something about all the logging going on in the coast range. And I sent them back a little, a little memorandum and I gave them some fact and figure. And I said, out of the, out of the hundred percent of the, of the timber harvest coming out of the coast range, over 85% of that comes off private lands with little or no regulation. So if you want to do something about the logging going on in the coast range, you're going to have to step on into the private land reforms. And so gradually they sold that to their funders and they got into practicing forest uh, practice reforms, but they're reinventing wheels. So I told them, go down to North California, go down to the Northwest part of California where Doug Furs, their principal harvest tree and take a look at what they do. Take a look at their forest practices. And here are the highlights. First of all, the clear-cut units are limited to 40 acres. Now in Oregon, a 
a lot of people think on the face it's a 120 acre limit, but if you look at the exclusions, it's actually twice that. You can get a little variance permission for to have a little larger cut, a variance from Oregon Department of Forestry that allows you to cut 240 acres. And I would ask anybody, do you think some ODF forester is gonna go out there and check to see if you harvested 300 acres or 200 acres? No, they're not gonna run against you over debating acreage size. But in California, you're limited to a 40 acre cut. So it's called scale. A 40 acre cut, you can't afford to bring a helicopter in an aerial spray a 40 acre cut. Now you're not only limited to a 40 acre cut, but the trees at the age of final harvest, which is also called clear cutting, the trees have to be at least 50 years old. Oregon has no limits. You can go, you can go on to a chunk of forest land in Oregon and you can lay the whole thing on the ground, 25 year old trees. I've seen that happen more than once. There's no final harvest age limit. There's no reasonable limit on the size of the unit. Now, California brings a third piece into play, their riparian requirements. Mm. It can be an ephemeral stream, it can be a spring, any kind of water source in California has to be protected. They don't make an issue over whether or not it's fish bearing, because guess what? Downstream, it will be fish bearing. <laughs> May not have fish up at the top of the hill, but by the time you follow that down and it joins another little creek and they become a larger stream, hey, you got fish. So the point is you can't grade water out. You can't say this water is important, this water is not important. So California recognizes that. Even in terms of how they, even in terms of how they mark their streams. In California, the little ephemeral streams, the little feeder springs and streams at the top of the hill are, are ones. The mid-course streams are twos. By the time you get to bigger streams, those are threes. By the time you get to a big stream and small rivers, those are fours and fives. In Oregon, they just have two denominations, actually three. They have F for fish, they have D for domestic water supply, and everything else is an N, non. So I told the environmentalists, I said, you guys are reinventing a bunch of wheels. You're fiddling around with a whole bunch of wrong-ended stuff. Just take a look at what's going on in California. Now, here's how you can see the difference. We have Google Earth Pro. I have to admit to being an Earth Pro junkie. I spend a lot of time on Earth Pro. Oh, my. There's the story right there. So you look at California, and you look at an area that has a large industrial land base, and those are not hard to find. And you look at it on Google Earth Pro. And then using the same scale, you look at an area like up the Coquille River in Oregon, Weyerhaeuser's big tree farm, or up the Silets, another big tree farm. You look at those areas on the same scale. It's hugely obvious who has the better forest practices and how it works on the ground. When you look at those photos in California, what you see are reasonably intact forest ecosystems. When you look in Oregon with these big 200, 300, even 400 acre clear cuts and all the heavy poison use, you see wastelands. You see lands that even after they're replanted are never going to be as fertile and productive as they were before they were cut. 
In California, you see a whole different thing. It's visual. You see the whole you see the whole thing. Now, California has a couple of other layers. If you're going to aerial spray in California, you're going to pretty much have to go through some, some heavy paperwork, okay? It's not going to be a slam dunk like it is here. You're not going to just say, hey, we're going to spray this area. We're going to start on Monday. Uh-uh, not happening. You're going to have to go through a public hearing. You're going to have to show why it is that you need to aerial spray that, that property. Why does that need to happen? In fact, if you even go to use forest poisons in California in your timber harvest plan, your THP, which has to be put together by a registered professional forester, you're going to have to show cause as to why you're using forest poisons. So you have all these layers in California that result visually in a much more intact industrial forest landscape. So why don't the environmentalists just bump a little south of the border and pick up some good and pick up some good reforms and be able to say, hey, Sierra Pacific in California makes money doing this. These big, these big forest owners in California are doing a much tighter, kinder, gentler job of harvesting their lands, and they're making money. For God's sakes, they're still buying more land. They bitch and they groan about it, but the point is they can do that profitably. But instead, they go off on some wrong-headed pursuit with forest for forest reforms. You see, yeah. Well, it keeps and that's them busy. when I realized it keeps them busy, keeps the paycheck coming in, right? All that busy work. Bingo, bingo, bingo. That's why I realized, you know, they're they're getting they're getting funded to reinvent the, the to reinvent the private private forest reform wheel. Yes. It seems like that. So what could turn the tides on this? Adapting stronger rules, adapting stronger rules at the state level. And the only way we're going to get there is through an initiative. So we're, another we're not, voter we're initiative. Not, we're not going to get there through the legislature. They're too captured. We're not going to get there through the governor. She's too captured. Yep. We're not going to get there through any of our congressmen or our senators. They're all too captured. Sure. Sure. So, but the large environmental groups are not going to support it. Maybe they won't come out against it, or maybe they will, but won't have their involvement. So how to capture the imagination of the public without those major environmental groups that people expect to be telling the truth? Yeah, that's the problem. What it's going to take for those of us that are truly on board, what it's going to take for those of us that are, that are really uh, anxious to see a reform and to, and to forge an initiative, uh, Either, either a fair tax initiative or an aerial spray ban, an aerial forest poisoning ban. What it's going to take to get that done is a chunk of money. Mm-hmm. So we need for some kind software person or some kind well-to-do person who wants to see what's best for the state, what's best for the forest, to land a chunk of money or to form an organization with a chunk of money and run an initiative. But the initiative has to be properly designed. It can't be overly complicated. It needs to have one single focus point. You can't have multiple points. You see, it needs to be designed, not so much by an attorney, but by forest practitioners. If you're gonna reform forestry, you need to get yourself a gaggle of forest practitioners together. Mm. People that understand what can be actually enforced on the ground. And what are they gonna do if they're like me? 
they're going to go, oh, that's easy. Just go down to Northwest California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Just pull the unit size down. Just limit, limit, limit clear cuts at 40 acres, and you'd be amazed what changes there are. Limit, limit tree harvest to 50 years or 60 years. You know, just a couple of simple things. Don't make it complicated. Don't try to stretch the money. You know, don't try to live two years on on foundation support for it. Just make it some blunt, simple changes. Here, we the people are going to limit clear cuts to 40 acres. We the people are going to limit clear cut age to 50 years or even 60 if you feel risky. 50 would be easy. Uh, 60 would risk a taking. But uh, we're going to, and we're going to protect all the water. We're not going to protect just certain streams. Mm-hmm. All the water has to be buffered with leaf trees. Yeah. It's just simple. You know, it's, they, they've made it way too complicated, which I knew they would when they got involved. Oh. They have to justify that money. Yeah, that's and what they're good again, at. the source of the problem is the money. You know, Josh, back before you were in Oregon and back before most of these environmentalists were even, even out of grammar school, hmm. I was involved in the 1980s wilderness the 1984 Wilderness Act. And I was a timber cruiser in Roseburg, Oregon, and I spoke out, heaven forbid, I spoke out in favor of wilderness in a county that bragged about having none. And now I'm named by the Wilderness Society as the godfather of two gorgeous wilderness areas there, Boulder Creek and the Rogumqua Divide, particularly the Rogumqua Divide, it was such a unique area. We could have compromised. We could have sold out. We could have split the Boulder Creek in two with the industry like they wanted to do initially. We could have walked away from the divide because it was too risky and we couldn't monitor or bring together the forces we needed, but we didn't. We had a vision. I paid to go to Washington, D.C. out of my own pocket. I lost my cruising contracts when I spoke up against wilderness, and I found a way to get around that. See? And it was my finest work. I still have a saying today when I hear people talk about, you know, especially if they're professional, what they've done or haven't done for the environment. I have a, a saying, show me your acres. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. That's it. That's it. And, and we had a recent, a recent win with uh, the Devil's Staircase. And the people who really anchored it, the people who really won that, the people who took... Oregon's congressmen and Oregon's legislatures in there to see it and bushwhacked all those hard miles to get in there and see it. Friends of mine are, are unnamed. The big groups did what they always do. Once it was, once it was a victory, they all thumped their chest and said, we won. Mm-hmm. See? That's the same thing they did during the 80s. Mm-hmm. Once it was a victory, they went, hey, look, we all won the Rogumpa Divide. Hey, look, we won Boulder Creek. And I'm thinking, no, not really. But you, you go ahead if it makes you feel better and take credit. Well, we we in the know know who the real heroes are, Roy. And uh, <laughs> you're you're definitely one of them. And I want to really thank you for coming on the podcast. I want to thank you for all the work that you've been doing over the years and continue to do. All the knowledge you passed down to me, you've definitely been a mentor to me so far as understanding how the forest works, but then also how the industry works and then how, as, as he's called, the envirocrats work. So that's been super instrumental for my personal development and uh, getting this information out to the world through the Green Root podcast. And if there are any wealthy listeners 
of the Green Root Podcast who want to contribute to protecting Oregon's forests, the uh, epicenter of timber harvest, as Roy says, uh, get in touch with me and uh, I'll siphon the funds right into the good work. So uh, thanks again, Roy. A pleasure. <laughs>